أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا رسول الله صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا غريب يا مظلوم كربلا يا ليتنا كنا معكم سادتي فنفوز فوزا عظيما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون God states in the Holy Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Truly, God commands justice, virtue, and giving to kinsfolk. And he forbids indecency, wrong, and rebelliousness. And he admonishes you so that you may remember, Amanna billah, sadaqallahu al-aliyu al-azim. Let us begin by enlivening our hearts and minds in our gathering with the remembrance of the Holy Prophet and his purified progeny. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Two days ago, the Muslim world marked the beginning of the year 1444 in the Hijri calendar. And for those of us who are gathered here tonight, and for many millions across the globe, that means that in the Hijri calendar, 1,383 years ago, Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet, along with a small group of his family members and his followers. They stood against a large army commanded by Umar ibn Sa'd, a large Umayyad army numbering in the tens of thousands. And on the day of Ashura in Karbala, these two forces clashed and a fierce battle engaged and almost everyone in the camp of Imam Hussein was brutally massacred, including the Imam himself. Now, if we were to analyze the Battle of Ashura strictly from a historical or a material perspective, we'll find that compared to other battles and other military conflicts throughout human history, the Battle of Ashura was relatively small in its proportions. When it comes to the time that the battle took place, the battle took place and it was over within a few hours. When it comes to the number of casualties on the day of Ashura, from both sides, the number of casualties were probably several hundred at a maximum figure. And so, if we analyze the Battle of Ashura from a historical point of view, strictly from a historical and material point of view, we'll find that it was relatively small in proportions. There were many other battles throughout human history that lasted for much longer than the Battle of Ashura. 
some battles and wars that took many months, some have lasted for many years. When it comes to the number of casualties, many battles and wars we find throughout human history have claimed the lives of millions. If we just look at the past century of human history, the number of military conflicts, battles, wars around the world, they have taken the lives of millions. Some battles, only a single battle in World War II, the Battle of Stalingrad claimed the lives of two million people, one battle. In World War I, the Battle of Verdun lasted for 10 months. So compared to other battles and other military conflicts that have lasted for much longer, that have claimed many more lives, the Battle of Ashura seems very small in proportion. However, how many of us and people around the world, how many remember these other battles and these other conflicts, let alone how many know about them, let alone remember them? And how many people remember Ashura? Ashura is remembered for almost 1,400 years, year after year, generation after generation. And the remembrance of Ashura intensifies with every generation. The Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. The Prophet says, إِنَّ لِقَتْلِ الْحُسَيْنِ حَرَارَ فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ That for the killing of Imam Hussein, there is a heat in the hearts of the believers that never subsides. There is a passion. You and me, we feel this passion in our hearts. It never subsides. We spend our entire lives every single year remembering Imam Hussein and every year the tragedy is renewed with intensity in our hearts and in our gatherings and in our midst. So why is it, what is the reason that other conflicts are forgotten about but Ashura is never forgotten, Ashura is always remembered? What is the reason? One reason is because if we were to examine other conflicts throughout human history, we find that oftentimes the main objective, the driving force behind these conflicts and these battles is material gain. Wars are waged, weapons are used, lives are lost, lands are conquered. Why? so that one can gain wealth, a certain entity, a certain government, a certain nation, a certain empire is trying to expand its wealth. It's trying to expand its land. It's trying to exploit resources and peoples. Material gains, material objectives. Whereas when we come to Imam Hussein's stand, we find that the objective and the driving force of Imam Hussein was a divine motive. It was a divine objective. And the Quran tells us God distinguishes between that which is material and that which is with people and that which is with God. God says, That which is with you Material, it is transient. It disappears. It's temporary. Yanfat. But that which is with God is everlasting. It's eternal. God tells us that that which is linked to God remains. That which comes from God and with, is with God, it remains forever. It's everlasting. And so Imam Hussein alayhi salam he is commemorated forever for time immemorial, immemorial until the end of time 
Imam Hussein is commemorated because his objective was a divine objective. He was not looking to claim land or resources or get wealthy. His objective was divine. And his primary objective was to uphold and to institute, to pursue justice and honor. And the pursuit of justice is something that is universal in its scope, dear friends. The pursuit of justice is not bound by time or place. It's a universal objective. And it's an honorable objective. And it is a divine objective. This is why many non-Muslims have also recognized Imam Hussein. Imam Hussein is not just recognized by Muslims or the followers of Ahlul Bayt. It is for this reason, because his objective was divine, it was noble, it was to pursue justice, that even non-Muslims recognized Imam Hussein. And the famous example of Gandhi, the 20th century Indian philosopher, Gandhi says, I learned from Hussein how to achieve victory while oppressed. Because he realized what Imam Hussein stood for. He understood that Imam Hussein stood for the pursuit of truth. And the Quran tells us that the pursuit of truth, it sets the pursuit of truth as a framework for all of the messengers and all of the prophets, why did God send, according to some traditions, 124,000 prophets and messengers? Why? The Quran gives us a clue. Tells us what the divine objective was. God says, لَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُلَنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ وَأَنزَلْنَا مَعَهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْمِيزَانَ لِيَقُومَ النَّاسُ بِالْقِصْتِ God says we sent the prophets with revelations, with books, with instructions. Why? So that society can establish and uphold equity, justice. This is the objective. This is why prophets and messengers were sent by God. This is why our Beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, why he was sent, sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. The Prophet was sent in Arabia, but he was sent to the whole world in order to fulfill this objective. In order to reintroduce justice and equity into society. And in those short years, that the Prophet operated, he was successful. He was able to transform society. He was able to transform a society that was seeped in injustice and oppression on all levels. He transformed their hearts and minds and he made them into a community that upheld justice, that understood and recognized the importance of justice. However, within half a century, 50 years after the Prophet's death, those who came after him, especially the Umayyads, Bani Umayyah, they reintroduced injustice and oppression once again. They instituted a system of governance that was nothing short of tyrannical. For 50 years after the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his family, the entire Muslim society lived under the grip of oppression and injustice and immorality and indecency. Thus, we find that Imam Hussein found that it was his divine responsibility to stand up once again. And this is why Imam Hussein is considered the heir, warith, of the Prophet's. We recite in the ziyarah, ziyarat warith, that Imam Hussein is the warith, the heir of all of the prophets and all of the messengers. Why? What did he inherit? He did not inherit their wealth or their material possessions. Imam Hussein inherited 
the responsibility, that divine responsibility to stand up for justice, to pursue justice. And this is why he is considered the heir of all of the prophets and the messengers. When Imam Hussein was getting ready to depart from the holy city of Medina, the beloved city of his grandfather, Rasulullah. He stood up and he declared his objective. He announced it so that everyone know ex knew exactly why he was standing up. He said, Inni lam akhruj ashiran wala batiran wala mufsidan wala dhanima. Just in case someone might be confused, have a misconception about why Imam Hussein was standing up, why he was rising up. The Imam said, I'm not standing up, I'm not rising up in order to cause mischief or corruption or for personal gains. I'm rising up in order to seek the reform of the nation of my grandfather. To enjoin good and to forbid indecency. This was his objective. His objective was to restore justice. To restore justice to a morally decaying, a dying society. A society that needed to be resuscitated. It was on the verge of moral death. And so Imam Hussein, he stood up. And he pursued all means. And he was ready to give up everything for this goal. Including his life. And he did. Imam Hussein sacrificed everything that he had in order to pursue this noble goal. In order to pursue justice to resuscitate society, to correct the transgressions that were on the ground. And so as the devotees, as the lovers of Imam Hussein, this is why we commemorate Imam Hussein. This is why we remember and we will continue to remember Imam Hussein. But we must go beyond simple remembrance, dear friends. Remembering Imam Hussein and commemorating Imam Hussein is excellent. In doing so, in fact, we fulfill and we observe that which the Prophet himself did. Imam Hussein, he, the Prophet himself, he commemorated and he remembered Imam Hussein even before his death. But we have to go beyond simple remembrance. We have to realize that we are also duty-bound. We have a responsibility and obligation by God to maintain justice in our lives. That we stand against all forms of transgression and wrongdoing. This is a responsibility upon all of our shoulders. This is what we learn from Imam Hussein. We learn to follow in the footsteps of Imam Hussein. Otherwise, anyone can remember Imam Hussein. Anyone with a good conscience, with a clean conscience, when he or she hears about the tragedy of Ashura, will shed a tear. How can you not? How can we not weep and cry? When we hear about the tragedies that befell the Ahlul Bayt, when we hear about the tragedies that befell Imam Hussein and his family and his children and the women and his followers and his friends, how they were brutally massacred without any mercy, without any compassion, any person with a clean conscience, a clean heart will shed a tear, will remember Imam Hussein and will commemorate Imam Hussein. But what makes this commemoration genuine, what makes it authentic, what gives it the ability to enliven us as individuals and as members of society is when this commemoration is coupled with action, 
when we learn the lessons of Imam Hussein and we implement these lessons in our daily lives. This is what makes our commemoration and remembrance of Imam Hussein special. And so we have to remember that it is our responsibility, each and every one of us, that we pursue justice in our lives and that we stand up against any and all forms of transgression. Usually when we talk about oppression and transgression, the thing that comes to mind is tyranny, right? That's the clearest form of oppression. A tyrannical government, a tyrannical society. That's the clearest expression of oppression, yes. But transgression and oppression has many faces and it has many forms and it has many types. And we have to be aware of these. Our fifth Imam, Al-Imam Muhammad Al-Baqir alayhi salam, he identifies three types of transgression, three types of dhulm and their consequences. He says one type of transgression is that which is never forgiven by God. And he identifies this as shirk, as associating partners with God. When one knowingly associates partners to God, the Quran tells us that shirk, associating partners with God, is not forgiven. If it's done knowingly, of course. It's not forgiven. It's one of the biggest moral crimes that we can commit. So that is one, he says, one type of transgression is never forgiven, and that is shirk. The second type of transgression that the imam identifies is that which may possibly be forgiven by God. And this he identifies as those transgressions that relate to the rights of God, حقوق Allah. For example, when it comes to many of our acts of worship, or acts of devotion and obligation. We're expected to observe them. We are expected to pray five times a day. We are expected to fast in the month of Ramadan. We are expected to go to Hajj. We're expected to do all of these things. But the Imam says that these things, they relate only to God. They are God's right. God has a right over us to be obeyed and worshipped in the manner that he has instructed us to do so. However, if we fall short, and sometimes we do, we may fall short. We may not fulfill some of these obligations in the best of ways. We may miss some prayers sometimes. We may miss some fasting sometimes. We may have delayed our obligation to perform the Hajj. The Imam says that while these are considered transgressions, they are considered wrongs, However, it is entirely within the jurisdiction and the purview of God to forgive. If God wants to forgive, he says, I forgive this transgression. Of course, this should not allow us to take these obligations lightly, to say, well, you know what? God will forgive me. It's okay. God is merciful. I may skip a prayer here or there. I might have some misfasts. I've been delaying my hajj until, inshallah, I become 85 years old and I rack up all of my sins and wrongdoings and then I go once to Hajj and God will forgive all of my record. I'll be completely clean. I might do that. And it's a transgression, it's a wrong. But in the end, God, it is under the purview of the most merciful and the most compassionate to say, I have forgiven you. This is the second transgression that Imam al-Baqir identifies. The third transgression, the third type of dhulm, he says that which is never overlooked. And that is the injustice that we commit towards God's creation, towards others. God does not overlook this. God does not ignore these types of transgressions. The hadith, it interprets for us the verse from Surah Al-Fajr, إِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَبِالْمِرْصَادِ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَبِالْمِرْصَادِ The hadith says that the mirsad is a checkpoint on the day of judgment. It's on the straight path. There's a checkpoint 
that every one of us has to go through. So sometimes you travel in certain parts of the world, right? In some countries in the Middle East, for instance, you'll find that oftentimes you have to pass checkpoints. They'll check your ID. They'll ask you questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Or between countries, when you're traveling between countries, there is, you know, border security, there's passport control, there's customs. It's a checkpoint. Everyone has to pass through that checkpoint and everyone is asked. You have to be given permission to proceed, to go forth. The hadith says that on the day of judgment, there will be a checkpoint that everyone has to pass. And anyone with the tiniest amount of injustice towards God's creation will be stopped, will not be permitted to pass that checkpoint. There's a hard interrogation waiting for us, brothers and sisters. God will ask us how we dealt with others around us. How did we deal with our families? How did we deal with our friends? How did we deal with our strangers, with people around us? And if God forbid, we may have acted unjustly, we may have oppressed someone, we may have harmed someone, then there will be accountability. We will be asked about our interactions. And so we have to be extra careful, dear friends. Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says that God has placed precedence for the rights of creation over his own rights. God is the master of the universe and God has rights upon us. But Imam Ali says that God himself has placed the rights of others, our obligation towards others before even his own obligations. They take precedence. And thus we have to be extra careful in our interactions with one another and the way that we deal with one another. We have to be extra careful not to harm one another, not to hurt one another, not to suspect negatively about one another, not to point the finger and have suspicions about one another in a negative way. I read a story once about an older husband who noticed that his wife, his older wife, not older than him, also older, that she was having trouble hearing him sometimes. So he said, let me go to the doctor. Let me speak to the doctor and see what we can do. So he went to the doctor and he said, listen, doctor, my wife has trouble hearing. I speak to her and she doesn't answer me. So I came to you to perhaps find a solution. Doctor said, no problem. I'll ask you to do something and you can report back to me so I can figure out exactly what the problem is. He said, go back home and do a little test, a hearing test. Go and stand about 40 feet away from your wife and speak to her in a normal tone. Ask her a question and see if she replies. And if she does not, then go a little closer, 30 feet closer away from her. And also in the same sort of normal voice, ask her and see if she replies. If she doesn't reply, go closer, 20 feet away and do the same. If not, go 10 feet away and do the same. And then come and let me know what's going on. So the man said, okay. He went home. He entered into the house. He saw that his wife was in the kitchen cooking. And so he went and he measured 40 feet and he stood 40 feet away from his wife and he called out, he said, honey, what are you cooking? She didn't answer. So he came closer, 10 feet closer, standing 30 feet away. He said, honey, what are you cooking? She didn't answer. So he went and stood another 10 feet closer, 20 feet away. He said, honey, what are you cooking? 
genshi dil nasu. He went and stood 10 feet away. Fourth time he asked her, he said, honey, what are you cooking? Again, she didn't answer. So he went and he stood right next to her, right behind her. And he said, honey, what are you cooking? She turned around, she was frustrated. She said to him, for the fifth time, I'm telling you I'm cooking chicken. Or qabili pulo. Oftentimes, it's easy for us to blame others, to suspect others. So-and-so doesn't know. So-and-so is wrong. There is something wrong with that person or this person. Right? It's easy for us to suspect negatively about others. And we forget to ask about ourselves. It's easy to point the finger towards others. But we have to be very careful, dear friends. We have to be extremely cautious when it comes to our interactions, that we don't harm anyone, neither through word nor deed. When the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, when he identifies the Muslim, he gives a definition of who is a Muslim. He says, Al-Muslimu man saliman nas min yadihi wa Very powerful description. He doesn't describe the Muslim as the one who prays all day or all night and fasts every single day or goes to Hajj every year or gives all of his money to charity. He says simply, the Muslim is the one who others are free from his negative words and deeds. If those around us, they're free from our harm or hurt, then this is a good indication that we deserve the title of Muslim, of a genuine Muslim. So we have to be extra cautious. The core of Islam, if we want to take this religious tradition and we want to break it down to its core, to its center, to its essential feature, we can say the following. That Islam seeks to establish a comprehensive system of rights and responsibilities. This is what it means to adhere to the core of Islam, to recognize the rights of others and our responsibilities towards others. The rights of God's creation, ibadullah, huquq ibadullah, the rights of God's creation. Our friends, our neighbors. In the case of neighbors, Imam Ali alayhi salam in his final will, his final will, he's on his deathbed. And he turns to his family and those around him. And he begins to give them his final will and testament. And he gives them a long list of responsibilities. One of which he says, Allah, Allah fil jiran. I remind you of res your responsibilities and your duties towards your neighbors. And he says, this is exactly what the Prophet taught us. The Prophet time and time again would insist that we are careful in observing our responsibilities towards our neighbors, towards those around us, towards family, towards our parents. Take the example of parents, the rights and responsibilities, the rights that our parents have upon us as their children and our responsibilities towards them. The Quran in many places, it repeats this theme. God talks about the obligation to recognize and worship only God and then immediately after God says, وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّاهِ وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Your Lord has decreed that you worship none other than Him. Immediately afterwards, God says, and that you honor and you care for and you show kindness towards your parents. In another verse, God says, وَوَصَّيْنَا الْإِنسَانَ بِوَالِدَيْهِ God has admonished has reminded 
the human being of his responsibility towards both of his parents, biwalidayh. And then God turns to the, to the mother. Look at this beautiful description. God says, I remind you of responsibility towards both of your parents. And I also remind you that your mother carried, she bore you with pain upon pain. Usually when we get together in family gatherings, We've probably all experienced this, right? It's your birthday and your family is together. And suddenly your parents, they begin to remind you and everyone else very embarrassingly of all of the cute little things that you used to do when you were a child, right? Little things and you get embarrassed. Usually we are reminded of those happy moments of our childhood. But no one gets up and talks about all of the difficulties that our mothers had in raising us and in taking care of us. No one reminds us of that. But the Quran does. God wants to remind us for all of eternity. And we know that we have a great responsibility towards our parents and especially towards our mothers. I read a story once about a young child who approached his mother one day and he handed her a list, a paper. The mother took the paper and she began to read it. And on this paper, there was an itemized list of things that the child had done, each one with a charge. I did my homework, $5. I took care of my baby brother, that one's hard, $10. I took out the trash, $2. I made my bed, $2.50. An itemized list and then a total charge at the bottom. The mother took the list. She smiled, she looked at her child, and she began to remember all of her experiences. She turned the paper around and she began to write down. Carrying you in my womb for nine months, no charge. Giving birth to you under pain and difficulty, no charge. Sleepless nights, countless sleepless nights, no charge. Feeding you, bathing you, changing your clothes, taking care of you, no charge. Taking you to school, no charge. Helping you with your homework, no charge. Total, no charge. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, the way that we deal with our parents, our fathers and our mothers, we have to be extra careful in what we say and what we do. Sometimes, even though our parents might not say it, they might not show it openly, sometimes we say some things that break their hearts. We do some things that hurt them and harm them. And we have to be very careful because this is not taken lightly by God. God will hold us responsible and accountable. When it comes to others around us, friends, strangers, we have to be careful in what we say, in what we do, in how we even think about others around us to avoid any type of transgression against God's creation. We have to remember the importance of maintaining trust and trustworthiness. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where trust is waning. We no longer have trust in one another. We no longer have trust in our institutions and in others around us. Betrayal 
has become something common, betraying our trust, betraying our promises. But this is not sustainable. When the Quran describes the believers in Surah Al-Mu'minun, God says, "Qad Al-Mu'minun." Successful are the believers, and then God gives a series of traits and attributes. One of them, God says, And those who observe their trusts and their covenants, their vows, that we fulfill this. We don't take it lightly. When someone entrusts me with something, with a secret, with something personal, that I fulfill that trust. I don't go around. I don't go around exposing that person's secrets. If I make a promise to someone that I fulfill that promise, either make no promise at all, or if you promise, make sure that you fulfill it. We have to be trustworthy. The Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam sallu ala Muhammadin wa alihi Muhammad. The Prophet, even before he became a messenger, even before he received his first revelation in Mount Hira, he was known in his society amongst friend and foe as what? As As-Sadiq Al-Ameen, the truthful and the trustworthy. And this is why people believed him. This is why people were willing and ready to accept his message because they knew he was truthful. He didn't deceive, he didn't lie. He would never deceive anyone. They knew that he was trustworthy. That when he was entrusted with anything, whether it was big or whether it was small, whether it was material or immaterial, that he would fulfill that trust. Even during his last moments in Mecca, when he's leaving Mecca, he's fleeing Mecca. The Prophet, when he left Mecca, he didn't choose to migrate to Medina. He wasn't going there seeking a job opportunity. Many of us, we relocate from place to place seeking a better future, right? We want a better job. We want prospects for a family, a better family, or whatever it may be. And so we willingly decide to shift location from place to place. When the Prophet left Mecca to Medina, he was fleeing, he was running for his life. Yet, even during those circumstances, he left behind. Who did he leave behind? He left behind Amir al-Mu'mineen. Imam Ali alayhi salam, we know that his primary role in staying behind was to do what? Was to take the place of the Prophet in his bed at night. We all know the story. Quraysh, they come in, assuming that this is the Prophet, they want to attack him, and they find there, willing to sacrifice his life, Amir al-Mu'mineen. But yet there's another reason. The Prophet instructed Imam Ali, he told him, stay behind and make sure that you fulfill all of my trust. I've been entrusted with people's wealth and possessions. I can't leave without giving it back to them. And so one of the objectives of Imam Ali was to go back and to fulfill, to return these trusts. This is how conscious the Prophet was of remaining trustworthy and fulfilling this responsibility. And this is a responsibility upon all of our shoulders. I read a story once about a young man who traveled, a student, who was traveling to, to seek spiritual elevation. So he would go from town to town and village to village, and he would look for those who could lead him and guide him in developing his spiritual sense. So he goes to a village one day and he's decided that he wants to acquire Ismullah al-A'zam, God's greatest name. The traditions, they tell us that with God's greatest name, one can perform miracles. So he hears that in this particular town, there is a spiritual master who has access to God's greatest name. So he he's, thinks, I'm going to go to him and I want him to teach me. So he proceeds, he goes there and he tells him, I'm so-and-so and I'm here 
to learn God's greatest name, Ismullah al-Azam, and I'm told that you can teach me, so teach me. So the man, he looked at him, and he told him, sure, I'll teach you, but under one condition. I want you to take this box. I entrust you with this box. I want you to take this to my friend. He lives across the river. Go and hand it to him, and he will teach you Ismullah al-Azam, God's greatest name. So the student said yes. The master told him, I want you to be very careful. Make sure that you deliver this item as I'm giving it to you. He said, okay. So he took the box and he went on to his journey. He found, he came to the river bank. He found a small canoe. He hopped onto the canoe and he began to row across the river. And as he was rowing, he noticed that the box began to move. So he didn't make anything of it. Again, the box began to move. It began to shake. So he became curious. He turned around and he took the box up and he lifted the top of the box. As soon as he lifted the top of the box, a mouse jumped out. It ran around into the canoe. He chased after it and then it jumped out into the water. So the young man put the lid back on the box and he continued rowing. He went across and he went to the location that he was told to go to. There, he arrived to the house of the man. He knocked on the door. The man opened the door and he saw that the young man was holding a box in his hand. He turned to him and he told him, you must be the young man who is here to learn Ismullah al-A'zam, God's great name. He said, yes. He said, this must be the box that my friend gave to you to deliver to me. He said, yes. He told him, give it to me. He took the box, he lifted the lid. He noticed that the box was empty. He told him, I think my friend gave you something in this box to deliver to me. The young man said yes, and he began to explain. He said, you know, I was in the boat, I was rowing over, and it started to move. I lifted the lid of the box, and the mouse jumped out, and I tried to grab it, and it jumped into the water, so I'm sorry, I lost it. The man told him, if you cannot be entrusted with a small mouse, how do you expect to be trusted with God's greatest name? We have responsibilities, brothers and sisters. We have to make sure that we uphold these responsibilities. Finally, as Muslims, we have the responsibility to uphold the rights of the Ahlul Bayt This is a responsibility upon all of our shoulders. The Quran reminds us, God says, قُلْ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا إِلَّا الْمَوَدَّةَ فِي الْقُرْبَى God commands the Prophet, he tells him, remind the people, I do not ask you for anything in return for my services except that you show kindness and respect to my family. The Hadith says that on the Day of Judgment, the Prophet will stand before his community and he will ask them, he will say, how did you deal with my family after me? How did the Muslims deal with the Prophet's family after him? Did they fulfill their responsibility towards the household of the Prophet? Did they show kindness and concern and compassion? The Holy Prophet during his final moments, his final moments on his deathbed, he is surrounded by his family. He brings his beloved daughter Fatima al-Zahra close to him. The tradition says that he whispers in her ear. She begins to weep and cry and then he brings her again and he whispers and she smiles. 
And then after that, he calls out for his beloved grandsons, Hassan and Hussein. They are brought towards him. He takes them, he embraces them each from one side. He places them both on his chest. He begins to kiss them. He embraces them very close. And the time would come for Imam Hussein to separate from the Prophet once again. Before he departs Medina, he goes to the grave of his grandfather, Rasulullah. He sits by the grave of the Prophet. He begins to weep, he begins to cry. He says, my beloved grandfather, Rasulullah, this is the situation that we're in. This is where we are now. You see the amount of injustice that they have done against us, how they have hurt us and they have harmed us. My grandfather, please take me in the grave with you. Life without you is no longer worth it. Take me into the grave with you. Let me join. The hadith says that Imam Hussein at that point he fell asleep. And he saw in his dream that the Prophet, peace be upon him, along with Amirul Mu'mineen and Fatima al-Zahra and his brother Hassan, along with the angels, they were proceeding towards him. They told him, our beloved Hussein, we miss you. We have departed from you for a long time and we miss you and we look forward to seeing you again. And we will be reunited with you. But we will only be reunited after you attain the station of Shahada of martyrdom. Ya Rasulullah, on your final moments, Hussein was on your chest. And he departed, he had to separate from being on your chest, Ya Rasulullah. On the day of Ashura, who was sitting on the chest of your beloved grandson Hussein? Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Wa sa'alamu al-ladhina zalamu ayya munqalabin yanqalibun. Wa al-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Assalamu alayka ya Sayyidi wa ya Mawlaya ya Aba Abdillah Assalamu alayka wa ala al-arwah al-lati halat bifinaik alaykum minni jami'an salamullahi abadan ma baqeet wa baqiya al-layl wa al-nahar wa la ja'alahu allahu akhir al-ahd minni liziyaratikum السلام على الحسين وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته وإلى أرواح المؤمنين والمؤمنات نهدي جميعا ثواب سورة الفاتحة مع الصلوات